This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, thanks for joining the programme today and welcome. I hope you've had a fruitful and happy week. If you've been with us before, you will know that we're going through mind training like the rays of the sun, a commentary by the Tibetan master Namka Pal on another text, The Seven Points of Mind Training. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about Namkar Pal's take on a slogan that appears in The Seven Points of Mind Training that says, Train consistently to deal with difficult situations. This basically means we should learn how to make every difficult situation work to our advantage. For instance, we could be like the jackal in the Zulu folktale about the jackal and the lion, which goes like this. One day, long ago, Jackal was trotting through a narrow rocky pass. As he often did, he kept his nose to the ground as he ambled along to catch the odd scent. Never know when I'll happen upon my next meal, he thought to himself, although it was highly unlikely that he would find a rat out in the midday heat. But perhaps he could catch a lizard or two. Suddenly, he was aware of a movement ahead of him in the pass. Oh, no! Jackal moaned and stopped dead still in his tracks. A lion was coming towards him. Realizing that he was too near to escape, Jackal was filled with fear. He'd played so many tricks on the great Bubesi in the past, he was sure that Lion would take this opportunity to get his revenge. In a flash, Jackal thought of a plan. Help! Help! cried Jackal. He cowered down on the cliff path, looking above at the rocks. Lion stopped short in surprise. Help! Jackal howled, using the fear he felt in the middle of his chest to accentuate his cry. Jackal glanced up at Bubesi. Oh, great Nkorsi, help! There's no time to lose. See those great rocks above us? They're about to fall. We shall both be crushed to death. Oh, mighty lion, do something. Save us! And Jackal cowered even lower, his paws covering his head. Lion looked up, most alarmed. Before he even had a chance to think, Jackal was begging him to use his strength to hold up the overhanging rock. So Lion put his brawny shoulder to the rock and heaved. Oh, thank you, great king, yelped Jackal. I will quickly fetch that log over there to prop under the rock, and we will both be saved. With that, Jackal bounded out of sight. Now that is one way of dealing with a difficult situation, and I guess we will need to use our wits in some of the tricky situations we might find ourselves in. However, in the text we are following, difficult situations refer more to events in which you can easily give in to afflictive emotions and negative actions that lead to suffering later. No doubt, if Lion ever caught up with Jackal in an unguarded moment, Jackal might be in for some serious misery. But here we are more concerned with negative karmic consequences if we give in to our afflictive emotions. Of course, Difficulties pop up in all sorts of situations, but the heaviness of karmic comeback is why Namka Pell tells us to be particularly careful in five situations. Those involving beings close to us, like parents or spiritual master and so on, the various members of our family, anyone who appears to be a rival, people who accuse us falsely, and those we dislike for no apparent reason. We've considered the first four of these and of the fifth, he says, you should pay special attention in your meditation 
to those people the mere sight of whom or the mere sound of whose names you dislike, even though they have done nothing against you. Because of this, there is a great danger of becoming angry with them. We're going to consider why we may feel dislike for people for no reason. But before going into that, let's think about our motivation for participating in the program first. Bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings, is the greatest motivation of all in Buddhism. So let that be the purpose of our getting together today. Otherwise, if you balk at that, at least think of your own liberation from suffering. Thank you. Now I guess at some point in our lives we've all taken an instant dislike for no apparent reason to someone we don't even know. Perhaps this person comes into the room and just catching sight of them some aversion arises within us. That sort of thing. We are of course not talking about disliking people because they are from a different ethnic group or social status or social grouping from us. There we have a reason for the dislike. But here we're talking about more about those we dislike without being able to point to anything about them or anything they have done or said we disagree with. With some fairly deep introspection, we may be able to find why we have this instant reaction, but sometimes we really cannot find the cause and we just have to accept that is how it is. Researchers and such like investigators have come up with a number of theories, one of which is that others are our mirrors and what we actually dislike in them is what we dislike in ourselves. Sue Geisler has an article titled Introspection, Why You Hate in Others What You Hate About Yourself on this, on the website www.elitedaily.com. She writes, I was watching an episode of a new crime series on TV the other day when a Mexican girl confronted her father saying, You wish you were white. You wish you were white so they'd like you better. You hate yourself and you hate us for looking like you. Now, according to famous German novelist Hermann Hesse, she's right. He said, if you hate a person, you hate something in him that is part of yourself. What isn't part of ourselves doesn't disturb us. Whenever you are judgmental of others, you're in fact judging yourself. When you point your blaming index finger to someone, you're pointing three fingers to yourself. Does that mean if you dislike the rapist, the war criminal, the pathological liar, you are identifying yourself with these people as well? Not necessarily. What Hesse was referring to, and what Freud and Jung referred to before him, is that kind of dislike has a very particular energy. You're triggered by another person in a way that's obsessive and almost irrational. When you hate the same kind of people wherever you go, what you dislike in them is likely something you dislike about yourself. Sometimes what we consider an imperfection in other people pushes our buttons or touches aspects of ourselves that demand our attention. Think of the mother who pinches her daughter during dinner when she wants another portion of food but fills her plate a second or third time. Her daughter's gluttony confronts her own difficult relationship with food. It's the hypocrisy of a mother who whips her son to teach him not to hit other people or the homophobic person who hides homosexual feelings. Best-selling author Debbie Ford said in her book The Dark Side of the Light Chasers, We see only that which we are. 
I like to think of it in terms of energy. Imagine having a hundred different electrical outlets on your, in, on your chest. Each outlet represents a different quality. The qualities we acknowledge and embrace have cover plates over them. They're safe. No electricity runs through them. But the qualities that are not okay with us, which we have not yet owned, do have a charge. So, when others come along who act out one of these qualities, they plug right into us. Sue Keisler continues, But what if studying those you hate was the right path for self-improvement? Carl Jung said, Everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. Observing those you hate is as important to bettering yourself as studying your role models. Everyone is your mirror. If you accept this and apply it to all your relationships, they'll be positively transformed by this simple knowledge. Identify what it is about the other person that triggers such a heavy emotional response and you will know why. Most of the times we hold others to a standard we impose on ourselves. If your lazy co-worker is getting on your nerves, maybe it's because you created the idea that only by working extra hard do you deserve your place in the company. You don't allow yourself to slow the pace, and if your co-worker doesn't match your amount of dedication to the job, he or she isn't good enough. Through our interactions with others, we come to understand ourselves better. When you can name what it is you hate so much about others and identify why it resonates so deeply with you, you can accept it. You can accept this is who you are and then work on what you could improve to be more at peace with the person you see in the mirror every morning. Try seeing each person as unique and complete, just as he or she is. Start with yourself and extend the compassion to those around you. Some people can't help being who they are, just as you can't help being who you are most of the time. The only way to live peacefully with the traits we like less in ourselves is to acknowledge them, own them and take responsibility for them. You'll only feel whole when you embrace all aspects of yourself. And that's Sue Keisler. And that's one understanding about instantly and with no reason disliking people we don't know. And it's probably quite valid, as in the final analysis, we are all intimately interconnected and constantly reflect off each other in one way or another. Stanford University psychologist and associate professor Jean Tsai puts forward another theory. At the Culture and Emotion Lab that she directs at Stanford, she has done some research that points to cultural conditioning playing a role on whom we instantly like or dislike. In her research, she found that different cultures value different positive facial expressions and that these differences arise in deep brain circuits that can predict who people like and dislike. Clifton B. Parker wrote an article for new.stanford.edu titled Culture Factors into Why We Like or Dislike People, New Stanford Research Shows. And it has this to say. Culture may play a key role in whether people like or don't like others, new Stanford research shows. The differences are notable among Mer Americans of European descent compared with people of Chinese origin. People respond more favorably to others who express the distinct kinds of positive emotions valued by their culture, said Jean Tsai, a Stanford associate professor of psychology. Tsai directs the Culture and Emotion Lab at Stanford 
and is one of the lead authors on the study, which was published in the Social Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Journal. Tsai explained that people tend to immediately like and want to approach some people, but not others. But the reasons for these fast reactions are unclear, she said, suggesting that culture plays a role. The study involved 19 European-Americans and 19 Chinese female undergraduates and graduate students, 18 to 28 years old, from universities in the San Francisco Bay Area, who participated in a study on rating faces. The students viewed faces that differed by expression, excited versus calm, ethnicity, white Asian, and gender, male-female, while their brains were scanned. Tsai said the research combines cultural psychology with neuroimaging and is part of an emerging field of cultural neuroscience. And so the researchers used functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, to shed light on the depth of culture's influence on preferences, she noted. This allowed the researchers to see neural responses to positive expressions in both European-American and Chinese students. In the study, Tsai and her colleagues examined whether cultural values could drive neural responses and preferences for different positive facial expressions, like excited versus calm faces. They reasoned that subjects' ideal affect or culturally valued emotional states would shape their brain and behavioral responses to different positive expressions. Within cultures, European-Americans responded similarly to excited and calm faces, but Chinese showed greater activity in the ventral striatum in response to calm versus excited expressions, Tsai said. The ventral striatum is a part of the brain involved in emotional responses, particularly those related to the anticipation of pleasure. This pattern held regardless of the ethnicity or gender of the face, Tsai added. These differences in neural responses mirrored subjects' ideal affect, since European-Americans tend to value excitement and calm to similar degrees, but Chinese generally valued calm more than excitement. In fact, Tsai explained, activity in the ventral striatum predicted people's preferences for excited versus calm faces many months later. Our findings suggest not only that different cultures value distinct positive expressions, but further that these differences are visible in deep brain circuits implicated in reward and affect, and predict their later preferences for social partners, she said. For example, Chinese might avoid people who express more excitement than calm, Tsai wrote. People prefer and value those who express the positive emotions most valued by their own culture. It's interesting that in this case, people's expressions have more of an impact than their ethnicity or gender, Tsai said. When we meet other people, we may automatically like or dislike them, but we may not necessarily know why. Our research suggests that culture, through ideal affect, plays an important role, which could have implications for who we choose to partner with and promote in the future, Tsai said. Tsai's co-authors include Stanford Associate Professor of Psychology Brian Knudsen, Stanford Psychology doctoral student Bok Young Park, Stanford Psychology researcher Elizabeth Blevins, and Louise Chim, who received her doctorate at Stanford and is now an assistant teaching professor in psychology at the University of Victoria in Canada. 
I feel that one cannot discard either the I don't like in you what I don't like in myself hypothesis or Tsai's cultural research. But Buddhism brings another explanation to the discussion with reincarnation. Basically, we can say that we have past karmic connections with all beings. Why? Because we have had infinite lives and have not always been with the same beings in each life. So we can postulate that throughout all our lives we've had relationships of one sort or another with every being there is, many times. Now say in a previous life you and I were friends, but then we had a massive argument and falling out. Our liking for each other turned to hatred, a hatred so vicious in me that I decided you had to die. And so I hatched a plot that ended with me stabbing you to death, making sure that you knew it was me who killed you. Now, you're born again in the same area in which you died, and you come into contact with me, your killer. What do you think will be your automatic reaction to me? Would you not be fearful or angry towards me and wish to harm me? Or perhaps you would be instantaneously compassionate, feeling that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. What I'm pointing to here is that at least some of our feelings of instant like or dislike may be based on experiences in previous lives. Dr. Jim Tucker, Bonner Lowry Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, has spent over 40 years investigating cases of children who remember previous lives. He is author of the book Life Before Life, a scientific investigation of children's memories of previous lives, in which he describes a number of cases. One example is a boy named Ekaphon from Thailand whose previous personality, and here I quote, was a young man in Ekaphon's village who was accidentally killed while on a hunting outing with his three friends. One of them dropped his rifle, which discharged and shot the young man. People in the village all identified a friend named Eat as the one whose rifle discharged. But Ekaphon was so convinced that it was another friend named Fon that as a toddler he tried to strangle Fon. Although both Dr. Tucker and his predecessor, Dr. Ian Stevenson, have maintained that usually memories of past lives fade and lose conscious significance as the children grow up, is it not feasible that the imprint remains in the subconscious and influences behavior even when people have completely forgotten their past life. And so, even if someone had no past life memory as a child, it is possible that a trauma they experienced with another person in a past life surfaces as emotional reaction when that person is encountered in this life. Let's take another example in Dr. Tucker's portfolio, this time of a girl by the name of Kendra Carter. This was not one that elicits fear or hatred, but strong attachment. And here is how Dr. Tucker describes this case. Kendra Carter, a girl who lives in Florida, was four and a half years old when she went to her first swimming lesson with a coach named Ginger. She immediately jumped into Ginger's lap and acted very lovingly towards her. When Ginger had to cancel a lesson three weeks later, Kendra sobbed uncontrollably. When she was able to have a lesson soon after, she was very happy and began talking about Ginger all the time. A few weeks later, Kendra began saying that Ginger's baby had died and that Ginger had been sick and had pushed her baby out. When her mother asked her how she knew these things, Kendra replied, I'm the baby that was in her tummy. 
At that point, Kendra had only seen Ginger at their lessons, and her mother knew that the two of them had never been alone. Kendra described an abortion, saying that Ginger had allowed a bad man to pull her out, and that she had tried to hang on, but could not. She described being scared in a dark and cold place afterwards. Kendra's mother eventually found out from Ginger that she had in fact had an abortion nine years before Kendra was born, when she was unmarried, sick and dealing with anorexia nervosa. Kendra began saying that she would die because Ginger had been unable to deliver her. She said, I have to die and I won't come back this time. This fear of dying became so severe that Kendra's mother took her to a therapist, who suggested a ceremony in which Kendra would be born to Ginger. Following this, her fear of dying seemed to resolve. Even though Ginger was often cool towards her, Kendra began being very bubbly and happy when she was with Ginger, but quiet and withdrawn otherwise. Her mother allowed her to spend more and more time with Ginger. Eventually, Ginger set up a room for Kendra in her home, and Kendra spent three nights a week there. Kendra's absences were hard for her mother, but she permitted them because Kendra's wish to be with Ginger was so intense. Unfortunately, Ginger and Kendra's mother eventually had a falling out, and Ginger said she did not want to see Kendra any more. Following this, Kendra did not speak for four and a half months. She showed no interest in activities, ate little, and slept a lot. At the end of that time, Ginger met with Kendra for two hours. During this meeting, Kendra talked again for the first time when she told Ginger that she loved her. Ginger began calling Kendra again but Kendra did not feel comfortable going to her home. Kendra slowly began talking more and she began to participate in more activities. Kendra's mother found all of this very troubling. Her daughter's struggle with the situation upset her and the possibility of reincarnation troubled her as well. She attended a conservative Christian church and she felt that she was committing a sin by merely buying a book on reincarnation during Kendra's troubles. She decided that perhaps Kendra's spirit had been looking for another body after Ginger's abortion, but she did not accept the idea that reincarnation is a process that normally occurs. Again, now, what relationship would have developed between Kendra and Ginger if Kendra had not remembered her previous life? Is it possible that she could still have had the same attachment for Ginger, but not known why it was there? From a Buddhist perspective, this could be quite likely. In fact, as a general observation, Dr. Tucker writes that often children who remember previous lives act towards those they knew in those lives in the same way as the previous personality did. He says, In addition to the longing for the previous family that many of the children demonstrate, some show emotions towards individual members of that family that would be appropriate for the relationship that the previous personality had with that person. For instance, the children are often deferential towards a husband or parents of the previous personality, but they may be bossy towards younger siblings, even if the siblings are adults at the time that the young subjects meet them. So, we can interpolate that if a tormentor evoked fear in the personality of a previous life, the person of this life could still be fearful of that tormentor in this life. Dr. Tucker mentions how children who experience fearful events in a previous life have fearful hangovers in this life. He writes, In general, as the children grow older, the phobias tended to diminish along with the statements of the previous life. 
Exceptions do exist in which older children still show a fear, even though they apparently no longer have memories of the events from the previous life that seem to be connected to it. We have looked at some of what could lie behind us unreasonably disliking people we don't know, and perhaps this can help us understand and let go of the dislike. Nam Karpel says that we should be specially careful with such people because we can very easily get angry with them. Now the opposite of anger is loving kindness. So an excellent way of dealing with our unreasonable dislike is to generate loving kindness for the object of our dislike. In the Huffington Post blog, Disliking Someone is Really Disliking Yourself, mindfulness and meditation teachers and best-selling authors Ed and Deb Shapiro recommend this as an antidote. They write, When we don't like someone, the feeling sticks to us like glue. We get hooked. Thoughts of the person come thick and fast, and feelings of dislike, resentment, anger or irritation are like ghosts constantly haunting us. And these unpleasant thoughts build up inside, creating havoc. All the negative reactions that arise during moments of discord or disagreement cause great suffering and anguish. But it is our own anger that does us more emotional harm than someone else's words. They go on to encourage us to imagine our mind is like a beautiful garden. They say, if you let a pig in your garden, you will have a hard time getting it out, as pigs really like tasty gardens. In the same way, negativity is like a pig that gets in your garden and runs amok. So how to transform our garden full of weeds and marauding pigs into one of sweet-scented flowers? Qualities such as kindness, compassion and forgiveness are the seeds we want to plant to cultivate a beautiful garden. But the self-centered ego's need for grasping, gaining and selfishness easily buries them. We are all capable of losing our cool, getting caught up in hot emotions and causing harm. When we only focus on our own concerns and problems, we become too self-engrossed to really acknowledge anyone else's issues. These are the weeds we need to pull up, as are the moments of closed-heartedness or anger, self-doubt and insecurity. We can bring mercy and tenderness to those places, to the wounded parts, so the fight within us can end. Meditation is the key in this. In fact, kindness and compassion are such clear outcomes of meditation that research shows how meditation stimulates the circuits in the brain associated with contentment, happiness and the feel-good factor. By training the mind, we can actually change the brain towards greater contentment, says Dr. Davidson in our book, Be the Change. There is certainly evidence to show that meditation practices designed to cultivate compassion and loving-kindness change the brain in many positive ways. By embracing ourselves with kindness, we are strengthening and reinforcing feelings of self-empowerment, worthiness and personal value. Sending kindness to our adversary enables us to release any conflict. This is like turning compost into roses, to coin a phrase from Thich Nhat Hanh. And that is that for today. Our time is now up. Thanks for joining the program. I hope it has been interesting and beneficial. Please dedicate to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings as usual. I hope you'll tune in again next time. Thank you so much and goodbye. 
For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.